We were in bed. Heard a noise in the hallway. I turned and looked at the clock, and it said 2.13 in the morning. I turned and looked at the doorway, and I said, Roxy, a second time. When I said a second time, two very large men entered my room with a handgun and a shotgun. They racked that shotgun so we'd know that shotgun was loaded. We never got out of bed. Hi there and welcome to episode number two of Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. In today's episode, Cheryl Ward Kaiser takes us down a path of shocking twists. And a warning, it does contain detailed descriptions of violence, so it may not be appropriate for everyone. But by the end, I think you'll understand why Cheryl's story inspires us. Here's Cheryl. Um, I will tell you that when I go to prisons or when I go to, like I just did a bunch of schools this last week at Salinas High School, I go in and I tell them my life story. I don't just start my life. I have a hard time just doing it without telling them who I am and how I got where I am today. Because you can't understand how I've done what I've done unless you get my background. And I came out of uh, Alisal. I know they call it East Salinas, but anyway, it's Alisal to me in Salinas. And as I was being raised out there, the first thing I remember the most about my childhood is being beat every day of my life, my dad. And to make young people today understand, and people understand, because a lot of young people don't know this, that there was no term child abuse when I was a kid. It was called discipline. You could do anything you wanted to your kid. So, did not know I was abused, did not believe I was abused. But of course it changes you. There's no way in God's green earth it doesn't. So when I started dating, it's as simple as I wanted someone to love me. I talk about how a lot of us girls go looking for dad's love and that's what we go looking for in a boyfriend and of course you're never gonna find it there, but that's what we go doing. So the hard part for me was, you know, you, you, you have no self-esteem left because of all the things that are said to you. And uh, because it's not the hits that do the damage, it's the words they say. There's where the damage is done in, in abuse. So uh, I met a guy, his name was Jim, I called him Jamie. I knew I wanted to marry him immediately. Off we went. Uh, this is, you know, I had sex with him, controlling him, because us girls play this game. We control men with sex. And I believed I could control him, and of course you can't. So he breaks up with me, I'm devastated. Anyway. There was another guy, went out, found another guy. Yeah, same kind of car he had, it was a different color. How's that for a great reason to pick a guy? Anyway, dumb reasons I'm doing things out here, which is exactly what happens in life, the dumb things you do. Go down the same road, only I'm pregnant. Now I'm gonna take you back 52 years ago. 52 years ago, if you got pregnant, you got married. I don't care how old you were. I don't care if you were 14 and he was 13. He got married, that's what you did. So I go to him to tell him I'm pregnant. He says, why should three people have to be hurt when it's only necessary for one? I'm not getting married. 
and I knew no one. There was no term single mom, single mothers. I knew no one that had a child that was not married. No one didn't exist. So now I gotta go home and tell my parents, you gotta know I am jumping up and down to go home and tell my dad, right? Last time he hit me, I was 17, here we go. Uh, day before Thanksgiving, you don't forget this crap. <laughs> Mom sitting on the couch, dad standing in front of me. Mom sat and cried and my father turned his back on me and then cried and then went and poured himself another drink. That's the way my father handled everything, alcohol. Well, I had done something I'd never done before, rendered him speechless. I knew what I had to do because they told me over and over and over again, God bless America, if you ever get pregnant, understand this, you're out of here. So I looked at her and I said I had to get out. She said, get out. Literally got a friend, moved away with me. Off we went. We picked Long Beach, California. I don't know why, it's near the ocean. Go get lost in all those people in Los Angeles, right? And I went down and uh, lived the loneliest time of my life. But long story short, June 6, 1964, 9.33 in the morning, I delivered a seven pound, two ounce baby boy that I placed for adoption that morning. Not easy to do, oh God. I, to this day, it was the single hardest decision I have ever had to make in my life. But it was the single greatest act of love I have ever done. I, I had to do the very best as a mother. The definition of a mom is when you love someone more than you love yourself. And I had to love him more than I did myself. I had to give him everything I could give him, which was a mom and a dad and everything he could have because nobody was going to be there for me to help me go through this. So I didn't get pictures. I didn't get to write a letter. I didn't get any, didn't, you know, didn't get any of those things. But uh, I did the best I could do. They told me to walk away and forget. <clears throat> yeah, try that one. You don't just do that. But I, after this was all over, I decided to come back to Salinas. And I came back to Salinas for a visit. When I came back for a visit, the first guy asked me back out, Jamie, wants to know if I'm coming back to Salinas. If I come back to Salinas, will I date him again? I'm like, yeah, right. Uh, if I come back here slick and I ever date you again, we'll have some rules this time. Number one, I may have had sex with you before, but don't you understand this? Don't you touch, don't you push, nothing. Can't abide by it. There's the door. Feel free to have it hit you on the way out. Very tough cookie came back. I eventually did come back. I eventually did marry him, and I did not have sex again until I got married. Now, I had two daughters. I want you to understand, for 20 years, I never told anybody I did this. Never. My parents never said, are you okay? Your husband never said, are you all right? No one. Treated it as if it didn't happen. So 20 years in that process, we have things happen to us, and we can shove those things further and further and further down. And we tell ourselves, we're not going to mess with this. We're not going to fool with this. We're never going to tell anyone this. <sighs> Matter of fact, we told ourselves we're going to take this to our deathbed. Of course, you know, <laughs> does it affect you? Oh, God, in everything you do. Can't look at it. 20 years. In that process of 20 years' time, I worked with young people. I uh, had a youth group that met in my house. I mean, 80 kids used to come to my house every single week, just shoved the furniture back, and we sat on the floor. It was amazing. Uh, it's so funny, I kept asking myself, why did they come? And I really think it's as simple as because they knew I liked them. 
I think a lot of young people are around a lot of people that don't like them. A lot of teachers don't really like their students. Kids know it. They don't have any doubt. When you like them, they respond to it. It's that simple. So we used to have a camp we went to every year. We took them off to 80 kids, teenagers to camp. That's a, there's something fun to do. You get very little sleep when you take boys and girls to camp. So I got my girlfriend to work the camp with me, and she got mad at something I had done at that camp. And she was screaming at me when the camp was over. And it sounds so simple, 20 years. 20 years to come out of my mouth. And I scream back, you don't understand, it's because I gave a son up for adoption. She finally shut up and listened and had her mouth fly open, and she's like, I tell you all my crap, and you didn't tell me that? Because that's what us girls do, right? Tell each other all our silly secrets. Guys don't do this, girls do. Okay, no, I said, man, I was going to take this to my deathbed. Of course, she then wants me to go do one of those Oprah shows where you go on and you find each other. And Really? I don't think so. I'm not going on nationwide television and find my son. So I thought, nope, you know. But I thought I could be there for somebody else. So I went to work at a crisis center. Well, there is something about being with 11 and 12-year-olds that are pregnant that gets your attention big time. Average age of Monterey County is 14. We're higher than everywhere else in the nation on teen pregnancy. Boy, that gets your attention without any kind of doubts. So I'm sitting in there with all these girls, and I get a phone call from a teacher from Gonzales High School, Mrs. Barber. And she said, hey, Cheryl, why don't you come in and talk to my class? And I thought, yeah, let's get on the other side of this crap, and let's go in and talk about this. So I'm being graphic, and I'm telling them all this. And, of course, somebody raises their hand in the classroom and says, excuse me, Mrs. Ward, have you ever had a crisis pregnancy? <sighs> okay. Now, I haven't told my two daughters, right? How do you tell your kids? But I know one thing about young people. The moment you walk in there and you lie to them, they know it. They know when people are blowing smoke. So I thought, okay, I got to do something here. So I told them the truth. And I watched the looks on their faces. And I wasn't just some old bag shanking my finger at them, right? I'm someone who is now 52 years down this road. And I'm still in pain for what I did 52 years ago. What you do today will be with you until the day you die. And boy, do we all have to get that. So, of course, my girlfriend keeps bugging me. She wants me to look for my son. Good friend that I am, I tell her to shut up. Meanwhile, my dad is dying of cancer. Now i got to deal with the abuse. How do you do that? Uh, I'm a counselor, so I knew I went to counseling for the last two years of his life. The last eight weeks of his life, I stayed with my dad, and I took care of him at night. My mom took care of him in the daytime. Did my dad ever tell me he was sorry? As a matter of fact, he reached up, and he hit me, and he called me all the same names he called me when I was a kid. Funny how they never forget the names they call you. Only this time, I grabbed his arm, and I said, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. I make that sound really simple. You know, if you're abused, you know never to block a shot, ever to pick your arms up, ever to stop anything, because if you do, you're going to get it worse. Forty-six years old before I actually could reach up and stop my father. <sighs> Monumental for me to stop him from hitting. He was absolutely wild-eyed. And then I forgave him. 
without him asking for forgiveness. And he died the next day. There is a world out here that is now, and they've done it, now they've made a law that says, okay, it's okay, we can just give you a shot and put you to sleep like you do dogs. But see, those last eight weeks of his life, they weren't for him. They were for me. I needed to figure out how to forgive this man. <laughs> and I'm going to give you one better. I needed him to hit me to do it. I needed to turn back into that 17-year-old girl. That's who needed to forgive him. So, you know, funky, he died the next day. Anyway, I lay there at night thinking to myself, my God, is this gonna be me and I'm gonna be looking for my son forever? What am I doing? Why am I not looking for him? Why am I not doing that? And this word jumped out at me. The word was fear. I went, fear, me, afraid, tough, me? <laughs> what a joke. Yeah, the what ifs in life. What if you go to his front door, right? And he slams the door in your face and says, I hate you. What if he hurt kids? That would have been my worst thought. My answer would have been, you know, as a mother, there's nothing we don't keep loving our kids for. We may not like something they do, but we still love them. I said, let's go. Let's find him. I went up to San Jose and found a group called Search Finders. They called me back in 18 days with my son's name. That his name was Brett Allen Payton, six foot two, 210 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. Oh my gosh, and he's listed in the phone book in Mission Viejo, California. I called her back and said, wait a minute, how do I do this? She said, write it all down, because you know, us chicks, we faint, throw up, fall apart, right? Guys don't do this, girls do. So I wrote everything down, and I made a phone call. Now I've been talking for almost 30 years now, Point in time, I'm talking 100 times a year. My largest audience was 1,700 kids. And I'm not nervous at all when I do it. But on that telephone, I am a wreck. I have one shot, and I know it. You get one shot to make this right. He hangs it up, it's over. So, I got my piece of paper in front of me. Here goes the phone call of my lifetime. Hello. Hello, Brett. His roommate answers the phone and says, hang on a minute, I'll go get him. You know how you see in the, in the cartoons where your heart comes out of your chest? I want you to know I can see my heart. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna have a heart attack and they're gonna find me dead on the floor. And she never met her son, right? <laughs> how do you calm yourself down? Here we go, it's 26 years old and my son is coming to the phone. So I pick up the phone. Hello, Brett, he goes, hello. I said, this is a very private and personal phone call. That's what they told me to say. He said, well, actually, I'm on my way out the door. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. We're, too bad, kid, we're a go today. I can't do this tomorrow. Here we go. Your name is Brett Allen Payton, is that right? He said, yep, that's right. I said, you were born on June 6, 1964. Yep, that's when I was born. Now, wouldn't you have thought somewhere in the last 26 years of this twit's life, he'd have thought about the phone call? Not a clue, right? No clue. So I'm like, oh my goodness, here we go. Because the next question's the toughest for us to birth parents. We're going to talk about adoption. And what if he doesn't know? What if he doesn't know he's adopted? I had got what they call non-identifying information about a week before I found him. And it basically said that his parents are going to be very open with him about his adoption. So I knew he knew he was adopted. So I said, and you're adopted, right? He goes, yep, I'm adopted. Nothing. 
not one thing out of this kid's mouth. I have no more questions on my piece of paper. Now what? I said, are you by any chance sitting down? He goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. I said, well, good, because there's no easy way to do this except do it. I'm your birth mother. He goes, wow. I said, until two days ago, I never even knew your name. He goes, wow. This is all he can say. I'm thinking to myself, are you sure you're mine? I'm a motor mouth, right? All this kid can say is, wow. I said, you didn't hang up on me. He said, I'd never hang up on you. That opened, that honest. We had a 15-minute conversation. He was late for class. Um, he was going to college at the time. It took him to be 33 years old before he finished college. But he became what he's always wanted to be. He became a high school teacher. Loves young people. Wonder where that came from. But even more importantly, he became a high school football coach. Even more important to him. So um, I decided I was going to go down and see him for the first time. Of course, my girlfriend got to go with me, right? That's a chick thing we do. Like, you want to go to the bathroom? We all go. Same thing. I get my girlfriend to go with me. She deserved it. She kept pushing. So she gets to go with me. So we go down to Mission Viejo and going to meet my son for the first time. Sitting in the lobby of the hotel. Got my girlfriend in the corner. Of course, she gets to watch, but she's not going on the day. She just gets to watch the reunion part. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. He's late. Should have told me everything. Anyway, I'm short, so I'm standing up, and I'm looking out the window. I have no idea what he looks like, right? <sighs> I, this is terrible. I shouldn't tell people this because it really is bad. It makes me look like I'm a jerk, but it's who I am. First thing I noticed, he walks up out front. He's got on a wrinkled T-shirt and a wrinkled pair of shorts. Girls, you know I have planned on it what I'm going to wear for weeks, right? Guys, what's the big deal? We just put on anything, right? Love them, love them, love them. Now I watch him walk in the lobby of that hotel and I'm looking at his face. Now, as I said, you get all the truth, good, bad, ugly, here you go with my life. I'm looking at his nose, my nose, looking at his baggy eyelids, bags under his eyes. In that sad, 26 years old, he's got this many bags. Then I'm looking at the bottom part of his face. Oh, my God. I'm looking at his mouth. I'm looking at his dimples, this big cleft in his chin, this enormous neck. For 26 years, I believe the father of this child was the second guy's. Why should three people? Oh, no. The father of this child is the first guy's. This is my husband's kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're all out there going, wait a minute, how can you be that dumb? Oh. You can be that dumb back then. Man, no, I don't know a parent one that ever told a kid about pregnancy and how you got pregnant and all that. Oh, they, didn't, they didn't talk. I think they thought if they didn't talk about it, you'd never find out. Uh, whatever. If a teacher would have talked about it, teacher would have been arrested. It was illegal to talk about sex in school. So the only people that ever talked about this were your lame duck friends. And can I tell you today, those myths that were alive and well back then are still alive and well today. You can be this dumb. I am now on tilt. I am going down. He winks at me and hugs me. I swear to God, I felt like I was in the Wizard of Oz and I was melting. Yeah, off we go in the truck. We're gonna go to Laguna Beach and have lunch and sit down. And of course, instead of saying to him, how's your life been? What kind of ice cream do you like? Oh no, that's not what we get to talk about. We get to talk about the guy that I wrote down on his birth certificate was his father, that that's not his real father, how there's this other guy. Oh, isn't this what you want to hear? The sex life of your mother? Yeah, yeah not good. I, I don't know. It was a mess. We were a mess. Um, 
uh, I had a picture of the guy that I thought was the father. I had a picture of my husband, thank God, and I put those two pictures in front of him. My girlfriend calls this part of the story pick a pop. She thinks it's really funny. Uh, the waiter wouldn't even wait on us. We, I, I was such a mess. He kept looking at the table going, I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm not going over there. We had a five-and-a-half-hour lunch. That's how long it took to have lunch. Uh, walked on the beach at Laguna Beach. It was an amazing day. But, of course, I wanted him to go back and take pictures with me and my friend, right? And he said, oh, you mean the lady over in the, the lobby that was crying when I walked in? So he saw her. Yes, I want, want her to take pictures of us. So we go back to the hotel, and I say to him, you know, we're coming back here in a week and a half. How would you like to meet your father and your two full-blood sisters? Cool. I said, okay. So I have to let go of him, right? Because I have a phone call to make to my husband. Now, my husband worked in produce. You live in Salinas. You work in produce. So, of course, he's in Yuma, Arizona, because that's where everybody is half their life. And so he's in Yuma. So I make a phone call to my husband. I say, I'm 25 years late. It's 26 years late. Excuse me. 26 years late. You have a son. Lying not to you, the first line out of his mouth was, wow. That's in the genes somewhere on his side. Second line out of his mouth was a line that hasn't changed over all the years either. You sure he's mine, right? I said, okay, I'm headed back to the camera shop. I'll get the film developed. I'll ship it to you overnight. You tell me. I called him two days later. He said, I will tell you, yeah, he is mine. And I will also tell you that he pretty well knew that over all these years. He just never bothered to talk about it. Oh, some stuff to deal with, huh? So we go down south. We're all supposed to meet. Son doesn't show up. It's like overwhelming, right? Your mother and dad got married, and you got two sisters, and and his mother's not a happy camper that I found him. So we go home. As I said, the ball's in my, his court, not in mine. Now it's up to him. About three weeks later, I get a very short note. Can we slow this all down? Wrote him back and said, yep, no problem. His birthday came up in June. That was February when we were supposed to meet. His birthday came up in June. I wanted to get him a little card, a little letter or something. So um, I went and got the card. Now i got to tell you about my husband. Guy hates to write. Oh, my God, he hated to write. It took 15 years of marriage before I even got a card. And when I finally got a card, it said, Jamie. That's it. Not I love you, love and kisses. Never. Never would this man do that. Now, I hope the people out there that are men understand and understand how good us girls are good at telling you how to do things. I have 14 grandchildren, and seven of them are girls, and I can tell you they are born knowing how to push men's buttons. We absolutely know how to do this beyond imagination. And when you're married, oh, God, you're even better. So I'm thinking i got to walk up and tell this twit what to write. I don't want him just writing Jamie, right? So I walk up to him, and I hand him the card. And I hear this very loud voice on the inside of me say, shut up, Cheryl. And the miracle of miracles in my life is I shut up. And <laughs> he wrote, son, I'd like to meet you someday. Love, Jamie. I just went back and looked at that. And it says, love, Jamie, not love, dad. But he did call him son. Eight days later, I don't know how to go from here to here. I wish I could walk over a 
fence or chapter. Chapter end. Here's another one, eight days later. My oldest daughter had gotten married six months before. My youngest daughter was home. I heard a noise in the other part of my house, and I thought, God, what's that? Roxy's gotten sick. We were in bed. I heard a noise in the hallway. I turned and looked at the clock, and it said 2.13 in the morning. I turned and looked at the doorway, and I said, Roxy, a second time. When I said a second time, two very large men entered my room with a handgun and a shotgun. They racked that shotgun so we'd know that shotgun was loaded. We never got out of bed. The guy with the handgun came around my husband's side. The guy with the shotgun came around mine. They pulled my husband out of bed and put him face up on the floor and put the handgun in his mouth. They pulled me out of bed, put me face down, hands up, and I have a shotgun to the back of my head. Now we have four guys in the house. Two stay with us, two go get my 17-year-old daughter. I will never be able to describe what it's like to be on a floor and you can't stop what's happening in your house. It seemed like it took them forever. They finally brought Roxy back in the bedroom, they threw her on the floor and they kicked her. They picked me up, they hit me with the shotgun. They had been told that we have a safe and that we have money in a safe. We don't have a safe and we don't have the money they want. But oh my God, do they believe it. They make my daughter stand on the bed. They make her strip her clothes off. He puts the shotgun in her mouth and he tells me he's going to blow her effing head off. Can I tell you I knew exactly what that would look like? Still not enough. He eventually raped her with the barrel of that shotgun. Still not enough. My husband had never been allowed to stand up in the entire time they'd been in the house, uh, back and forth between the two walk-in closets on his knees. The last line said was, we're gonna rape your wife and your daughter and we're gonna make you watch. Men out there, you understand the role you play is protector. The role women play, we're nurturers, you're the protector. There's only so far you can push a husband and you can push a father and you can't push him any further. My husband began to stand up for the first time in 48 minutes. As he stood, the one that was getting ready to physically rape Roxy, he already raped her with the shotgun, came up behind him and hit him in the back of the head with the shotgun. Shotgun goes off in the bathroom floor. He shoves him into the bathroom. It goes one-on-one -on -one into my closet. I heard a muffled shot. I heard a thud hit the floor. You know how you know what you know? As I said, I'm laying face down, hands up. I have a man's foot on my back. I have a handgun to the back of my head. Every time I move, every time I talk, he pushes with his foot and the gun. I didn't pick my head up the last time I heard that shot. I knew. They came out of the closet. No big deal, this didn't bother them in the least what they had done. All they could say is, Let's get a hold of that F and B, me, bent on, still bent on raping Roxy, and let's find that safe. 
48 minutes. Do you know how many times three people have said there's no safe, but they still believe it? I think you can tell when I do this, I'm in the room. I can hear them. My eyesight was gone to me that night, so my hearing is everything. That's where all my flashes are. That's all my, my stuff is my hearing. I have a request from me to you, and there is no audience I don't say this in. The single number one word that has done more damage to me than any other word in English language is the F word. I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of times they use that word in my room. And yeah, I'm going to ask you. No, actually, I'm going to beg you that if you use that word, if you use that word, what a funny thought, huh? Everybody seems to use that word. When you use that word, understand this, I can feel that gun barrel at the back of my head and his foot on my back in one split second. So the You'll do better in life if you quit using that word. So, anyway, end of preaching. Lookout comes running back in the room. He says, oh my God, they all, there's a car in the road. They all dipped down, looked down out there, and saw this car that stopped. Let's get out of here. The last one to leave is the guy that had his foot on my back. He uh, told me not to move for 15 minutes. Right. The moment he hits that hallway, I turn around and I'm up. And the first thing I see that morning is my daughter laying on our bed, wrapped up in a ball, fetal position. They tell me that's what people go back to that have been raped. But I, but I can't mess with my daughter. I gotta get in that closet. I gotta find out if he's alive or dead. The longest run of my life. You're so afraid of what you're going to see. I get into the closet. He's got his eyes open. I'm sorry. I like staying right here. I can see him. How are you supposed to feel for a heartbeat? All I can feel is my own coming out of my chest and my head and my... Anyway, I screamed at Roxy. I said, Roxy, get dressed, get in here, do CPR. Guess who doesn't know CPR? She got dressed. She started doing CPR on her dad. I hit 911. He breathed three breaths, and he died in Roxy's arms. Total most appropriate place for the man to die. He died trying to save his daughter. Eight minutes later, the sheriff's office was there. The sheriff saw my case stayed up 27 hours, and I had all five of them in jail. Hardest part for me? They were teenagers in my home. The very thing I loved was in my home. I thought they were late 20s. Roxy thought they were early 20s. The boys were 18, 19, and 20. The car in the road that scared them off, that was the 16-year-old girl that drove the getaway car. Pretty trippy they didn't, I mean, they all dipped down, looked out, and saw that car, but they didn't recognize it because she got a brand new automobile that day. She chose to drive her brand new car in a home residential robbery. She lived in a five-bedroom house. I have a three-bedroom house. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, the next line I say in this whole thing of what I'm telling you today is the only one I care about you remembering. I don't hate them. I hate what they did. 
I hate what they did beyond anything you will ever imagine. But I don't hate them. Now I have to put them away because I have to make sure they don't go in anybody else's house. That's my responsibility to make sure that happens. So the first person we brought up was a 16-year-old girl and we certified her as an adult. She pled guilty. She got 15 years to life, but she got to serve her time in the California Youth Authority. The next one was the guy that had his foot on my back. Please know what you see on television is not true, what happens in court. I was not allowed in court. I was held out for 22 months, too strong a victim too strong a victim. So I got held out in the hallway of the district attorney's office. So I happened to be able to be in court because they were talking about moving the whole court trials out of county completely, changing Valdir as they call it. Learned a lot, let me tell you. Anyway, I happened to be in the courtroom out of nowhere. No one knew he was going to do it. He just stood up and said, Your Honor, I'm guilty. This is the one that had his foot on my back turned around to me in the courtroom and said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Ward, for what I did to you and your family. One out of the five. He got 29 to life. The lookout had a gun. We couldn't prove he had a gun. He did what they call a slow plea. Told you I got an education. He got 25 to life. Now we bring up the shooter and the one that raped my daughter. Nine felony counts, special circumstance. Death penalty. I do not believe in the death penalty. I stood 100% alone in my family. I told him, you get the death penalty for him, I will stand outside of San Quentin. It will not happen. It will not happen. They brought back life in prison without chance of parole for the shooter. Then they brought up the one that raped my daughter. He didn't want to give him life in prison without chance of parole. He wanted to give him 25 to life yeah, whatever, less. I had every judge in the world try to get me to take a lesser charge. I wouldn't do it. I delivered a victim impact statement. I don't know if you know what that is. You have two parts of a trial, guilt phase, decide they're guilty or innocent. Then you have a penalty phase of the trial. And finally, in the end, the victim slash survivor. I hate calling myself. I am not a victim. I am a survivor. The survivor gets to get up and talk. Well, I've already been delivering speeches forever, huh? I know how to deliver speech. You'll never find me with notes in front of me, ever. I stood where the DA stood, didn't sit on the stand. I stood there, and I stood next to the young man that raped my daughter. And I walked that judge and that young man back through his rape. And I had to talk like he talked. I had to use the F word like he did. And I had to tell that court how my grandfather had sexually molested me, how my dad had beat the crap out of me. And I told him, I made choices in my life to become a different person. So I'm not going to listen to excuses that, oh, well, because they have a bad mother or they have a bad this, it's okay to hurt someone. It's never okay to hurt anyone. There's no excuse. Judge got off. He was supposed to sentence him that day. He got up and walked off. He came back four days later with life in prison without chance of parole. That's justice, not vengeance. And there's a difference between the two. <sighs> Did my son ever get to meet his father? No, we ran out of time. Did he come to the funeral? No, ran out of time. It's just too much, a little overwhelming. Your mother and dad, now your dad's been murdered. I mean, talk about a bit much. 
he did come. I do get to meet him. I did get to see him. I do have him in my life. His uh, adoptive mother and dad just died this last year. They, were, they had gotten a divorce when he was 12, so this perfect scenario that I wanted wasn't so perfect. He's a good guy, though. He is a good guy, and he's so much like me. It's hysterical. More like me than my two daughters. It really is funny. Now, I did the first victim offender mediation in California Youth Authority's history. I believe, I've, I believe in restorative justice. I don't know if you know what that word even means. I didn't. Um, when I went through the court trials and I got the victim impact, when I did the victim impact, I wanted to thank the guy that wrote that, that gave me the opportunity to have a voice in the courtroom. And I figured that was a victim that wrote that. It wasn't. It was a man called James Rowland that was the head of corrections and the head of the California Youth Authority. He'd been one of the few people to be the director of both of those. And he wrote the victim impact. And, and it was started in California and now every state in the union has it. And he gave us the voice victims. And it was shocking to me that that's who did this. So I went over to Fresno one time to do a talk and they surprised me that he was in my audience. And to say my talk changed when I, when I found out he was there. But he walked me out, and I told him, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I can't tell you what a gift you gave for me. And he said, I have another gift to give you, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm just going to tell you I want you to come to this conference in Fresno called Restorative Justice, and I'll pay your way. And he said, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it except that. I went back over there, and I went to that conference. And every time I ran out, I said, this is what I fought to do. I fought to have a voice. I fought to have something to do with the system. And that's what restorative justice does. It puts victims at the head of the equation, that we are a part of this equation, not just it's done without us. So I got to learn what restorative justice was. So I pushed and I forced California's authority to do a victim offender mediation. You sit down with the person involved in your crime and you have a mediator that gets her ready and me ready. And I had an amazing person that got both of us ready. We spent three and a half hours together. I have one reason for going to see these people. I can tell you all day that I don't hate them and I can tell you that I forgive them. I have to tell them that I, I don't hate them and that I forgive them. So I did in that three and a half hours, that's what I told her. And would you believe the girl in my crime never once said she was sorry in three and a half hours? Amazing, huh? Then I went and saw the young man that had his foot on my back. I got tired of waiting for corrections to tell me they were doing this. So because I do so many speeches and classes and talking for victim impact and things, I've gotten to know superintendents and all these things of all these prisons, these wardens. So they allowed me to go behind glass to see him. I spent two and a half hours with him. I've seen him probably five times. I literally can walk in a prison and walk in with a whole group of people standing there and just walk up and kick him and say, hey, how are you doing? It's really cool. Um, I've seen the young man that had his foot on my back. I've seen him three or four times. I, uh, three years ago, went down and saw the one that raped Roxy. Nobody in my family wanted me to go. I went alone. I'm glad I, everybody kept apologizing. I'm sorry you have to go so far. He's in Lancaster prison. I'm sorry you have to go five and a half hours, blah, 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 blah. I'm glad I had five and a half hours to get myself ready to see him. 
And I'm going to tell you how I got ready to see him. I didn't have the radio on. I didn't do any of that. I told myself the whole time I was going, shields down, shields down, shields down. Because see, what you're listening to is a real tough cookie, right? But see, who had to walk into that prison wasn't a tough cookie. Who walked into that prison was Roxy's mom. That's who had to walk into that prison. He had to look at Roxy's mom, and he had to explain to Roxy's mom why he did what he did. Six and a half hours I spent with him. It took him two and a half hours to even look at me. He would tell you, along with all of the rest of them, that the hardest thing they've ever had to do is face the person that they hurt, not sit in prison. Get yourself ready to meet the people that you've left behind, the survivors of the chaos that you've caused. When I walked out, I hugged him. I know that sounds nuts. I hugged him. He asked me one of the questions I had not planned on answering. He asked me a question. The question was, what do you have hope to come from this day that we're going to have today? And I looked at him and I said, that we'd become friends? It's as if I hit him with a baseball bat. He couldn't even breathe. He said, we can't be friends. There's no way we can be friends. I said, why? Because you're in prison and I'm out? I said, I can't write anybody. I write all of these guys. I have thousands of letters from all of them. I still have them all. I've never thrown one of their letters away. I can't write anybody. I'm not friends. Later, he wrote me that that's when he knew I had truly forgiven him. was when I told him that I wanted to be his friend. And he also wrote me something that I knew was going to happen, but I would have never told him. He wrote me that I had set him free. And I knew that. I knew I would set him free. What I didn't know was that he set me free. I I had taken an envelope with me in case they asked me what his CDC number was. I don't have him memorized, so I thought, well, I better have that with me just in case they asked me. So I had the envelope with me. So when I came home, I went to put that envelope away. Well, when I went to put that envelope away, anytime I would ever look at any of their names or anything, I have a flash. And the big flash I have is, is of him coming around the side of my bed, pointing the shotgun at me. And when I looked at that envelope, what I saw was not that flash. That flash was gone. What I saw was the young man that was sitting across from me at that prison. And he's a totally different young man today. Out of all the guys that have gone to prison, he's the only one that has no dings against his record, not one in 25 years of being in prison. No dings. As the warden told me, now how many of those I have, Cheryl? Not many. No dings against his record. That's all I ask these guys to do. You honor my husband by how you live your life. That's the only way you make up for this. There is no way to make this right. You can't make my husband come back to life. You can't keep apologizing. That's nuts. You honor him by how you live your life. And he has. And today, if I could, I'd let him out. I'm trying to get the one out that had his foot on my back, and I'm trying to get out the the lookout. The shooter's the only one that not, has not agreed to meet me through restorative justice with a victim offender mediator um, because he doesn't want to say he's guilty. 
So uh, that's part of the gig here. You gotta say you're guilty. He just keeps believing he's gonna get out. And you know there's a piece of me that can understand that. I can't, I, I hate prison. Oh my God, I hate what it is. I, ugh. I'd change it. Oh my, and I see wardens changing it. I see good things happening in some of these, especially the level four prisons right now. They're actually getting programs. My God, we gotta change this. This, this can't, we're treating, we treat our men worse than women, worse than we treat animals. What in the God's green earth have we done? That's not what us victims want. That's not. I'm pouring victims into this place so they can see that it's not this Taj Mahal people all think it is. It's not. I can't imagine living. I don't, I can't even imagine what I'd be if I was in prison. Anyway, so the shooter writes me. I still write him. Someday he'll agree to see me. None of the mothers of any of these boys go see these guys anymore. None of them. The only one that writes the shooter is his grandmother, and she's got bone cancer and me. I will never abandon him. I will not abandon him. I know what it is to be abandoned and what it is to abandon somebody. I will never abandon him. Someday he will agree to see me. So I just want you to understand why I do all this and uh, why I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not nuts. <laughs> my life is not half empty. My life is full. I have remarried. Um, I married the cop that caught them all. I know that sounds like a movie. It's not. Um, I want people to get caught if they hurt people. I do. I don't think uh, I, they can't get away with these things. You just can't. But if people want help, I'm the first guy to tell them I'll help them. So, you know, it's uh, life's good, not bad. It's We've got 14 grandchildren. Love every minute of it. Go to games. Do nothing but enjoy every minute of what good people can do trying to make a difference, that's what I'm trying to do. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez. You can hear more of my interview with Cheryl and learn how her daughters are doing today by clicking Episode 2 on the Gray Area page at voicesofmontereybay.org. If you'd like to learn more about restorative justice and victim-offender dialogue, see the show notes. This episode was produced by me and co-produced by Mara Reynolds. Special thanks to KAZUFM and Krista Almanson and to Emma Wynne-Jones. The music was by Ketza from the Free Music Archive. And our theme song was written and performed by my brother, John Reynolds. Gray Area is sponsored by Voices of Monterey Bay. And you can find our show notes and all our episodes at voicesofmontereybay.org.